The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Um, we're uh, heading off, venturing off into a new topic area. We're going to talk a little... Uh, I don't know that I would call it taxes. We're going to talk more um, tax, well, special tax treatment accounts <laughs> because that's really the purview of of the Ed Slod Group. And, and Jim has recently received a newsletter from them where they uh, kind of supplied to his uh, his group, Jim's group that he's part of with the Ed Slot Program, um, a series of questions. I think there's 20 of them, so we're going to play a little 20 questions. Um Questions that other advisors are asking the Ed Slot Group itself. So they turned around and, as an educational offering, uh, sent these questions out to other advisors who hadn't asked the questions but might benefit from the answers to these questions. And if if we all, as advisors, can benefit from the answers to the questions, I suspect there's a bunch of you all, too, out there in listener land who might be able to benefit from the answers to these questions as well. So uh, this uh, topic area is Jim's brainchild. He came up with it today. So if it doesn't go well, we all know who to blame. But I suspect really anything that comes out of the Ed Slot group is usually helpful. So um, I'll bring Jim in. He's got the questions. I haven't seen any of the questions. but I um, haven't seen the questions either. <laughs> so, Hi, folks. This is Jim, in case, in case you don't recognize my voice. In his latest... Um, uh, in his latest new location, right? Your last time yes. we spoke, you were in uh, Philly, right? Philly. Yep, last time. I was in the hotel room in yep. Philly. Mm-hmm. Now now I am in a bedroom, um, a bedroom with bunk beds in it, uh, in Loveland, Ohio. Not Loveland, Colorado, which is the town right next to where I live. I live in Berthoud, Colorado. Loveland, Colorado is a very well-known city. It's not even a town in Colorado. Um, I don't even know. I don't think there's a hundred thousand people in Loveland, Colorado. Is there? I don't think so. No, I don't think. I think it's like sixty, seventy, but sixty, seventy. It's it's huge in the sense, folks. There are tons of shopping centers in Loveland. Um, Loveland just went bonkers along the highway. There's just shopping everywhere in Loveland. 
but Loveland, Colorado. I'm in a small little town called Loveland, Ohio. I think Jake looked it up today, said there were 13,000 people in Loveland, Ohio. Uh, so I have made it to Ohio. My cold is getting progressively better, even though my cough is still here every now and then. Hopefully I won't uh, cough on today's show, but if I do, I'll try muting myself. It won't be as bad as it was in the hotel room in Philly. But uh, things are things are slowly improving, and uh, I'll be here in Ohio for about another two weeks, and then I intend to drive home. I got to really watch the weather, though. I don't want a freak storm to blow in, like hit Colorado uh, a couple of days ago, where it got cold and snowy. Because I'm in the Lexus, and the Lexus just stinks in the snow. This sedan that I have, uh, I didn't bring my truck or my Subaru. So I, I want to drive cross-country in dry weather. So I'm hoping to stay another two weeks. I might leave a few days earlier or stay a few days later, depending on what the weather does. So this is the part of your trip where you're just lounging about in Ohio. Um, I'm getting a feel for it. Getting the yes. feel. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm attracted to the Loveland area, not just Loveland per se. I I guess I should say northeast of Cincinnati. Cincinnati is in the lower, if you're looking on a map, the lower left corner of Ohio. Uh, And it's really where Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio all meet. Uh, The Ohio River is what separates Ohio from Kentucky. So it's kind of Cincinnati is in the lower left. And... For some reason, I'm just attracted to north of Cincy. South of Cincy is Kentucky, and I love Kentucky. I'm hiking in Kentucky in a couple more days. I'm looking forward to it. But I think older, Jim, there's a whole reason, folks, that I share all this with you, these travels and what I'm doing. One of the things Chris and I always implore our clients and our listeners to our podcast to do as you evaluate your own retirement. This is part of my retirement, not so much my trip to Philly and my trip to Dallas, Texas, and my trip home to see family. That didn't have anything to do with my retirement per se. But this trip to Ohio for two, two and a half weeks is totally retirement related. You should look at your retirement, not your initial retirement, your go-go phase, if you will. But you should be looking at your latter, your slow-go and no-go phase of retirement through the eyes of an older person. And I've always said, I don't think 70, 75, 80, 85, it's not going to be any older than 87. I told you that I made a deal with whatever entity kept me alive with my stroke, that if I lived, I lived 30 more years. Why well, I didn't say 40 beyond me. So I'm out of here at 87. Although when I do my own retirement plan, Chris, I'm projecting into my 90s just in case the entity that saved me is going to continue to to grant me life. But as I age, as I get into my 70s and 80s, folks, That's how you have to look at your life, not as someone in their 40s, 50s, or even early 60s like like I am. And when I do that, when I come out here, I feel this part of Ohio calling to me more uh, rather than Kentucky side, because everything that I want to do in the better hospitals, Chris, are on the other side of the river. And I just don't think the Ohio River, which is a pretty big river, I just don't think older Jim is going to enjoy having to drive across the bridges 
all the time. If I want to go to the hospital or to see a doctor or to go to see a sporting event or a show. So I kind of am leaning towards living on the Ohio side of the river. And as I stay out here more and more folks, I'm being drawn to the northeast side of the metro area, if you will, because there's still more, and, and I'm holding up air quotes, rural places that I could live and have several acres of land uh, on which to garden, which is what I want to be able to do. This part of the Cincinnati area, Chris, just has more lots that are about one, two, three acres in size than other pots. So that's kind of why I ended up in Loveland. Not saying I'm going to just move to the Loveland area. I would probably go as far north as Lebanon, maybe out east as far as Goshen or something like that, but this general area. So probably way more than y'all wanted to know, but I share it to get you guys to understand as you project your retirement, look at it through the eyes of people who will be, hopefully, in your 70s, your, even your late 70s, 80s, and maybe even into your 90s. And when I do that, I don't see 80-year-old Jim appreciating Colorado as much as 30, 40, and 50-year-old Jim appreciated the, the dry heat of Colorado. I think older Jim, who's going to want to garden, wants water to actually fall from the sky more than just 11 inches a year. Fascinating. The other fascinating thing is when I Googled Loveland, Ohio, did you know that there's a castle there? Have you visited the castle? There's a castle in Loveland, Ohio? Yeah, there's a legitimate, well, it's not the biggest castle I've ever seen. I mean, it's not European castle standards, but it's a pretty impressive castle for United States. It's I a did museum, not know too, a so you, you can visit have there. To go see it. Yeah, it gives you something to do. It's, uh, it's I think, literally called the Loveland Loveland, Ohio Castle. Five reasons to go to Loveland Castle and Museum. Hmm. Yeah. Is it museum. guarded by knights? No, it's a museum. You can go see it. Okay. Well, I, I will. I did not know that there was a castle in Loveland. Mm -hmm. Nobody even mentioned that to me when I told them I was in Loveland. They didn't say, oh, did you go to the castle? Maybe the locals just take it for granted. Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Alrighty, folks. So anyways, today was kind of up in the air on what we were going to do. And Chris asked me during our group meeting, we plan as a team here at our firm, and we generally do most of that team meeting on Tuesday mornings. And when I joined the group, Chris asked, what are we going to record the podcast about? And I said, I have no idea. And I do have a little folder that I created, I kind of borrowed that listener's idea of creating folders, uh, but I created an EDU folder. And I kind of drag emails into it that I think would make good EDU shows. And we've received several recently. I guess you put a call out either last week or the week before uh, for ideas for EDU shows. And several people have sent their ideas out. But what I did when I got the latest Ed Slot membership email, I dragged that in there. Because he just said the newsletter was going to be dedicated to questions that the team, his team, was being asked at his latest event. He does these two-day events several times a year, folks, throughout the country to allow advisors to go. you got to pay them, but allow advisors to go learn from his team and ask questions. So uh, I thought it was 20 questions, Chris. I reread it. There's 26 I only read the first two. 
I have no idea what the other 24 are asking, and I'm not making that up. I have no clue. I know they have to do with all IRAs. So what I thought, to make this interesting, I will let you pick which question we answer. And this is kind. This is really going out there on a limb, though, Chris, because it's kind of like, I don't know, a couple months ago when we wanted one more question and I told you to pick a date. Uh, or a month rather, and I would just randomly choose an email from that month, and it turned out to be one we could answer. So I'm hoping when you choose a number between 1 and 26, and we do that until we run out of time on the podcast, when I read that question, we actually know the answer. (laughs) And uh, the answers are also given, but my hope is we can also rather than just read Ed's answer and go on to the next one, which would be boring, we actually add some commentary and maybe some depth to it. That's what I'm hoping. So anyways, this is what happens, folks, when you're out traveling and you don't have time to plan anything and your girlfriend was with you until yesterday and she's gone and I had to move Airbnbs. I'm in a brand new Airbnb and didn't have really time to do much of anything. So that's what today's show is. Chris, why don't you kick us off? Choose a number between 1 and 26. Hmm. Let's go with 23. You would. I got to scroll all the way to the bottom. (laughs) You gave me the choice. (laughs) True, I did. (laughs) All right. Scroll, 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 scroll. Okay. There is 26, 25, 24. You are 23. Oh, you would have to pick a stupid one like this. Mm. Don't. That's Michael Jordan's number. Oh, wait. No, that was 22. Do not pick 22. Okay. <laughs> as you do this. Um, <laughs> 22 had to do, it says, the recent Florida hurricane disaster, there's an extension of tax deadlines, and mm. it gets into the Florida disaster, um, which I don't even know the answer to it. But 23... Seems a little bit better. Okay, here's the question. First time for me as well. If an individual has a 401k, oh, this is an easy one. You'll be able to nail this one. In fact, if you've been listening to this podcast for more than six months, you better get this answer right. Okay, you ready, Chris? And I know you'll nail this. That just put a lot of pressure on me too. Oh, you'll get this. If not, I will personally fly home and smack you upside the head and then fly back out to Loveland, Ohio. Okay. Because you will definitely get this right. If an individual has a 401k and an IRA, can they take the required minimum distribution for both out of one of the accounts? Mm. Now, you've been listening for more than six months. You should be able to get this. And Chris, I know you'll be able to get this. Yeah. Do you want to uh, opine sure. a little? Uh, certainly. First of all, the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely positively not. You cannot do that. You cannot, um, I don't know how we would describe it. Um, it's not really co-mingling, but you can't satisfy the, yeah, you can't satisfy. I was trying not to use a, a an industry term, but... Uh, the, the term, as Jim mentioned, is, is aggregate. So we can't um, satisfy the RMDs from an employer plan from an IRA or vice versa. Um, IRAs, as, those, as people realize, 
are all considered one big IRA, even if you have multiple IRAs that you get different statements for that are at different custodians. So you are allowed to aggregate the RMDs from an IRA uh, or IRAs, plural, although you really don't have plural IRAs. That's the thing that's, you know, with, with the wording, it's, you might think you have multiple IRAs. In fact, you just have one in the eyes of the IRS, who's the one who enforces the RMD rules. Um, employer-based plans like 401ks, you're required to satisfy the RMD from that particular account. And there's no cross aggregation, if you will, uh, between the two. Um, so you, you cannot do what, uh, what was asked in this particular question. Perfect. That is correct. Let me read mm -hmm. Ed's answer just so everybody mm -hmm. can get some ideas. I'm going to add a little bit more background mm -hmm. to this. The answer that Ed gave was no. RMDs from plans cannot be aggregated with IRA required minimum distributions. A person must take the applicable RMD from the plan and IRA separately. Mm -hmm. It is never possible to aggregate RMDs from 401ks. The RMD from 401k must always be taken from that specific plan. And he gives an example. He says Mick is 75 and has an IRA and a 401k. Mick must take an RMD of 40000 from his 401k and 25000 from his IRA. Mick cannot combine these accounts. He must take the IRA RMD from the IRA and the 401k RMD from the 401k. He does go on to say, though, however, after taking the 401k, 401k RMD, Mick could roll the balance of that 401k into his IRA, thereby next year, with his retirement assets now combined in one account, Mick will have to take a single RMD for the entire amount. So he's not going to save, Mick in this case, folks, is not going to save and necessarily reduce his RMDs any. He's just going to simplify. We are big proponents of simplification in retirement. I know a lot of people have unnecessarily many times, uh, as Chris likes to word it, in the office. And we chatted about a person just today. And Chris, I think you worded it as saying that they uh, were collecting accounts, in your opinion, because they had so many accounts. This particular person that we were chatting about, they had a lot of different accounts. As you age, I just spent a little bit of time trying to encourage you to look at your retirement through the eyes of a 70, 80, 90-year-old. So all of you do-it-yourselfers right now, you may have multiple accounts. You may have multiple 401ks, multiple IRAs. And if you have a spouse, they have multiple accounts. And you're tracking them all. Maybe they all serve a different purpose. One has a really neat investment you like or whatever the case may be. And you can juggle three, four, five, eight, ten, twelve, whatever it may be, different accounts. But as you age, as you get into your 80s and 90s, if not 70s, you're going to want simplification. And one of the easy things to do is consolidate everything into an IRA. 
Now, again, if you are looking, especially if you are uh, from an industry that is prone to being sued, such as the medical industry, if you're a physician, you may want the rock solid creditor protection that you get from an ERISA protected employer account, such as a 401k. You might live, though, in a state that gives near ERISA-like protection to your 401, excuse me, to your IRA. So you still could consolidate those assets, but you could also live in a state that doesn't give good credit or protection to IRAs. And you may not want to consolidate and leave separate 401ks. Everyone is different. But outside of the uh, credit or protection, simplifying your financial life in the future by consolidating 401ks will make the older you a lot happier, I feel, and a lot easier for the older you to continue managing. Or if you now have to hire someone to help you manage your assets or rely on a family member to manage assets, it may be easier for them to have one or two accounts rather than six or seven accounts that they're trying to to manage. So uh, it was kind of a trick question because a lot of people know you can consolidate IRAs. You can have six IRAs, but take the RMD for those six IRAs from any one IRA. You can take all RMDs from one IRA, and that's good, as long as it's not an inherited IRA. They can never be combined with your own IRAs. But if you have six 401ks, maybe three for you and three for your wife, that's six separate RMDs that have to be taken. 401ks can never... A 401k from company A, the distribution from that 401k can never satisfy the RMD from a 401k from company B or company C. So consolidating 401ks is sometimes the best thing to do. Anything else you want to add to that, Chris? Uh, No, just remember the exception for spouses with an inherited IRA. You can. That was the one exception you, you stated that... Inherited IRAs, you can never consolidate unless you're spouse. Now, inherited IRAs from the same decedent can be combined. Oh, true. So there's all nuances there, too. The, but you, if you inherited one from your aunt and one from your uncle, negative. they cannot be combined. No. But if your uncle had two for some reason or maybe uh, three, I don't mm-hmm. know, you can combine them from the same decedent into one IRA. Right. Little known fact on that yeah. one. All right. So do not choose number 22, and you already chose okay. number 23. Okay. We're going to go with 17. 17. That's my next choice. Is there a reason you chose 17? Well, these are actually the series of numbers I usually play when I go to Vegas, and I'm at the roulette table. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no particular reason. Just... Not that I go to Vegas a lot, but when I do, I have a very specific pattern of numbers that I use at the roulette table, which I know is you know, not going to grant me any better luck in winning, but it's just my thing. Okay. 
This one, I think, longtime listeners will be able to get it. I'm 98% chance you will get this, Chris. I'm going to even go 99. Okay. A person has been contributing the maximum amount to a traditional IRA for many, many years. But for the past 10 years, his income exceeded the phase-out levels for deductibility and he was not permitted to deduct his IRA contributions. But he never filed Form 8606 to specifically identify and report to the IRS this after-tax basis that he contributed to the traditional IRA. Do you have any suggestions on how to fix this missed basis. So that was a question that someone asked the Ed Slot group. So I'm guessing they had a client who had been contributing to IRAs for a long time, but for the past 10 years made too much money. And this is something a lot of people don't know, Chris, that anybody can contribute to an IRA. That's not an issue. Not anybody can contribute to a Roth IRA. Those contribution limits to a Roth IRA phase out at various levels. And don't ask me to repeat them because I don't know them now off the top of my head. But anybody can contribute to an IRA. However, not everyone can deduct on their taxes those contributions. That's why you have a deductible IRA contribution and a non-deductible IRA contribution. When you contribute to an IRA and you do not deduct the contributions, folks, you are supposed to file Form 8606 and attach it to your 1040. And that just tells the government, hey, I put, let's just say it was $6,000, folks. Hey, in 2023, I put $6,000 into my IRA and I didn't deduct it. The only reason you're going to want to file that, folks, is so when you take those dollars out of your IRA in the future, you don't have to pay taxes on them again. Because if you didn't file that form, you theoretically would be double taxed. You put $6,000 of after-tax dollars into your IRA, and when you took it out because you never filed Form 8606, you're going to owe taxes again on those contributions when you take them out. So that's what 8606 was designed to do. It was designed to keep you from having to pay taxes twice. But what if, as this advisor asked the Ed Slot Group, Chris, this person never filed the form? What can they do now to claim this basis? Well, what's unique about 8606, unique might indicate it's the only case. I don't know if it's the only case, but 8606 traditionally or or normally would be filed with your 1040. You'd include it with the 1040 in the year. 8606 is a, a yearly dated document, so there's an 8606 for each year with the with the years printed very cleanly right at the top 
like like your 1040 has. But what's uh, interesting about the 8606 is it has its own signature line because you are allowed to file an 8606 separate from your 1040. So um, in this case, I believe the answer is, um, and it makes it's fairly easy for this to be done because something you didn't point out that I'll remind everyone is the basis in your IRA, in your traditional IRA, once you put it in there, it doesn't change. There's no growing, shrinking, what have you. Uh, until you start taking money out, then it changes, obviously. But but it doesn't change due to your investment activity inside of the IRA. So all you have to re- be able to reconstruct is the dollars that went in there that formed the non the non deductible basis in the first place. And so I believe the answer is to go back and file retroactively, essentially. Uh, the missed 8606s to reconstruct the basis so that you're not double taxed on those distributions as they come out. And you're you're able to file it separately without doing an amended 1040 because the 8606 has its own signature line and they accept the 8606 as a standalone filing. I believe that's the answer. You did very well. Chris is correct, folks. So here's Ed's answer. Form 8606 can be filed after the fact to claim any missed basis with a traditional IRA. And as an added bonus, 8606 is a standalone form, so it can be filed independently of your tax return. And then he continues, if you can document all of the traditional IRA contributions and confirm that no deductions were ever taken on the corresponding tax returns, that should be enough to determine your basis. The total amount of that basis can then be included on a single Form 8606. But be aware, filing one Form 8606 showing a very large amount of basis. Remember, this gentleman, oh, gentlewoman, doesn't say if it was a guy or a girl, putting a guy or a woman, rather, putting money into their non-deductible IRA. But if they were putting the maximum amount in for the last 10 years, you're probably going to see a $50,000, $70,000 basis being claimed uh, on 18606. And Ed cautions, be aware that filing one form 8606 showing a large amount of basis may raise eyebrows. So make sure you have clear documentable proof also, even though 18606 can be filed, the IRS may require that form 8606 be filed for each of the years you are claiming it. So in other words, if the IRS questions it, make sure you have documented proof. And I would always, and we tell our clients this who have had to do this, send in one. Just send in 18606, and I would attach it to your 1040. That way, maybe it'll get lost in the shuffle and it won't raise any, <coughs> excuse me, any eyebrows. But send it in with one amount written on it, but don't randomly choose a dollar amount. You have to be able to prove it. So, how are you going to do that? That's one thing to say. Make sure you can prove it. Start going to the IRA custodian and asking them for the contributions that were made over the past 10 years. Some might send you a single report. 
showing the past 10 years and the amount you contributed, you may be able to pull that up if you stayed with that same custodian, you weren't bopping around to multiple custodians in that 10-year period. You may be able to find that yourself under your account history nowadays with everything being digitalized and available online. So once you can get a summary from the custodian on the contributions you made, then make sure you have your tax returns for those 10 years as well, because there you can prove you never deducted it. If you're saying, I contributed this amount in 2013, exactly 10 years ago, I contributed this in 2013, and then here is my 1040, and you can see I never deducted it. If you ever get audited, that's when you're going to need to show this to them. So just make sure that you have your documentable proof. You don't need to send it all in with 8606. You're just going to send it in with the total written on it. And as Ed points out, only if they question it will you need all this. So do have it. Chances are they'll never ask for it. But if they do, you then have it. Once they get your 8606 and they update their computer system that that's your basis, then you're all set. They know that that's what your basis is. Then going forward, he doesn't explain this in his answer. Going forward, make sure you keep filing and updating that dollar amount on 8606 because it's a running tally. And it'll just keep increasing and increasing and increasing. And what's the whole point of this, Chris? It is the pro rata. What does that mean? So now distributions happen, folks. And Chris will take over and explain why you need to track all this. Because everybody wishes, hey, I've been tracking my basis on 8606. I just want to take my basis out so I don't have to pay taxes on it. I've put 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, $100,000 in my IRA and never deducted it. I want to take that money out. Chris, can they do that? You cannot take just that money out. It's going to come out pro rata mixed with your mixing your pre and post tax dollars that are in there uh, proportionally by their balances. So unfortunately, once it gets mixed in there, that's that old cream in the coffee issue. And uh, there are a few methods to separate that cream and coffee, but the standard approach as you distribute it is for it to come out pro rata. Okay. All right. So far, I think this is going pretty darn good. Your, your numbers are working out very well. Remember, no 22, no 17, and no 23 anymore. Next okay. question. Next one would be uh, seven. And this is literally how you play the wheel? Yeah, not necessarily in that order, but I usually play these numbers all in, at the same time. All right. Number seven. Ooh, long question. Short answer. Long ass question. All right. I'll try to make it a little shorter. Let me look at this real quickly. Okay. I. This is a lame answer. That's why it's short. <laughs> I think you can handle this one. I, I'm. I think most listeners will be able to get this one. This one is more of an operational question. It's more of an admin question. Um, but anyways, it is what it is. You chose number seven, and here we go. A client of mine inherited a four. Not my client, folks. This, these are questions that Ed was asked. A client of mine inherited a four hundred three b plan from her husband. 
We want to move that plan to the surviving spouse's own IRA account. And I'll delve a little bit, folks, down what that means. Does the current custodian need to move the 403B account into an inherited IRA account first and then transfer the funds to that spouse's own IRA account? So let me repeat that. This advisor is saying, hey, I have a client whose husband died. The husband has a 403B named my client, the spouse, as beneficiary. My spouse wants to move, excuse me, my client, who is the spouse of the decedent, wants to move that inherited 403B plan. A 403B plan, folks, is like a quote-unquote 401K for generally uh, a non-profit. It's not a 401K, but it works like a 401K. Generally for non-profit governmental Agencies usually see them in education a lot, sometimes in healthcare as well. So they have these 403B plans. The advisor is asking, does the 403B have to first move that inherited 403B into an IRA with them and then remove it from that IRA into my client's existing IRA? Or can we just move the 403B right into my client's existing IRA? Now, before everybody gets excited thinking, you can move inherited employer accounts into your own IRA. Only spouses can do this. Nobody else. Only a spouse can take an inherited 403B, 457, 401K, TSP, IRA, whatever the case may be, and move it into their own, their own existing IRA. They don't have to create an inherited IRA. They don't have to stretch the payments. They're not subject to the 10-year rule. They can avoid that whole rigmarole by simply treating it as their own and moving it into their own account. So the question is, Chris, do they have to, does the 403B have to first move it to an IRA before the advisor can move it into the his client's existing IRA? I'm making an educated guess because uh, I don't know this for sure. I'm sure we're about to get confirmation from the Ed Slot response, but I suspect that in this day and age, you can, in fact, make that move directly and not put it through a conduit IRA anymore is kind of how we would describe moving it temporarily to an IRA before you move it to ultimately where you really want it to go. So I'm going to say, yes, they can move it directly. You are correct. That's why his answer is so short. The spouse beneficiary can do a direct rollover from the 403B into her own IRA. There is no need for an inherited IRA account to be set up first. Nice. Fairly straightforward, more of an administrative Mm -hmm. type of question, but it it is still a a very valid question that I'm sure a lot of people have. You don't have to do that for spouses. Okay. Okay. Nice. Uh, Let's go with number 20 at this point. Okay. So you went from 17 to 20. Well, 7 to 20. The last one was 7. 
Ah, seven. Okay, sorry about that. So it says eight, nine. Okay. This one has to do with QCDs, Qualified Charitable Distributions. It begins, here is my scenario. There is a husband, age 68, who has a wife, age 73. They are married and filing a joint tax return. The husband has a pre-secure act inherited IRA from which he is already taking required minimum distributions. Let me pause there. I think what the advisor is saying here to the Ed Slot Group folks, pre-secure act means stretch IRA Mm -hmm. was around. So the husband likely inherited an IRA from his parents or from a sibling, maybe even a friend. Pre-secure act, so pre-January 1st, 2020, and the husband is now stretching those, uh, that rather, IRA over his remaining life expectancy. That's the old stretch IRA that everybody affectionately loved and didn't necessarily go the way of the dodo bird because of Secure Act, but it's been wounded pretty bad and only a limited group of people can now stretch. So stretch IRAs still exist. It's just greatly curtailed who can use them. But this 68-year-old husband married to a 73-year-old wife filing a joint return has a stretch IRA. So And he's taken RMDs from it because that's what stretch IRAs are. You have to take a distribution each year for the rest of your life. Here's the question. Can he do a QCD to offset the RMD on this inherited account? That's the end of the question? Yes. No. No, because QCDs, first of all, you must be 70 and a half years old before you can do a QCD. There's nothing that overrides that requirement that has anything to do with an inherited IRA or anything else. You've got to be 70 and a half to do a QCD. You might be saying, well, wait a minute, the wife is over 70 and a half. That's true, but this isn't, this isn't the wife's account. She's not the one making the Q- QCD. He would have to be the one making the QCD, which he's not allowed to do. Um, so that's my, that's my version of the answer. You are correctamundo, as they would say, or as Fonzie would say. Um, because the wife is eligible to do QCD, she's over 70 and a half, and they are filing a joint tax return, does not matter. And also, little known fact, you can do QCDs from inherited Mm -hmm. IRAs. So that wasn't the deal killer. If listeners were thinking, oh, you can't do it, it's not your IRA, it's a stretch IRA the gentleman has, that's okay. You can do QCDs from inherited IRAs. The issue is the person is only 68. Doesn't matter that he's married to someone who's 73. He's only 68. Doesn't matter that he's taking RMDs from the inherited IRA. None of that matters. When he's 70 and a half and he must be 70 and a half, not the year he turns 70 and a half, he actually has to pass age 70 and a half. 
once he reaches 70 and a half, he could treat that RMD, all of it or a portion of it from the inherited IRA as a qualified charitable distribution. He could direct the IRA custodian to send some or all of the RMD directly to the charity. That way he won't have to declare that money on his taxes as income. So if he is charitably inclined and those RMDs that he's being forced to take, he doesn't need, he could direct the RMD, all of it or some of it, directly to a charity and never even have to declare it as income. And that can help from a tax planning perspective. But he's still a few years away from doing that because he's only 68. Exactamundo. <laughs> so let's go with uh, the other question. The other numbers I'd usually use aren't part of your group of 26. So let's do three. Number three. Question three. Let me scroll back to the top. There's one. There's two. Here's three. Oh, look at this. I'm going to say it's probably 50-50 for our listeners and if they'll get this one right. I'm going to give it to you as as high as 90, 90% chance you'll get this one right. Okay. If a 78-year-old client is still working and then she dies, is she considered to have died before or after her required beginning date for her employer's 401k. 78-year-old client is still working when she dies. Is she considered to have died before or after her required beginning date for her employer's 401k? The required beginning date, folks, as Chris mulls this over, and everyone does, for those who don't know, the required beginning date is April 1st of the year following the year you become subject to RMDs. We don't use an age anymore because it used to be 70 and a half, then it was 72, now it's 73, and a couple more years, well, about nine more years, it'll be 75, unless they screw with the law again. So rather than tying it into a specific age, I like to just say it's April 1st of the year following the year you become subject to RMDs. Okay, Chris, care to take a stab? When did this 78-year-old woman die? Before or after her required beginning date? So I might learn something with Ed Slot's answer here because I'm not 100% confident in where my mind is going on this. My mind is going to... Yes, she's reached her required beginning date just because she happened to be working and then she essentially has an exception where she doesn't have to take RMDs during that time. So if she qualifies for an exception, she still has met, she still have reached her required beginning date. The fact that she died while still working means she never was affected by RMDs, but all other related calculations or determinations that might be connected to her being past her required beginning date are going to be in play. So 
that's my stance is she is once she passes she is considered to have passed after her required beginning date okay and then folks who who answer along with you in this particular one chris you are wrong yeah i was afraid of that you're afraid of that so what happens here and i kind of was trying to give hints and give the answer away yeah i said the the way that i like to look at it is you die the required beginning date is april 1st of the year following the year you become subject to required minimum distributions when you are working and you don't own more than five percent of the company you can claim and your 401k has to allow it that's the other thing not all 401ks allow this but if the 401k allows the still working exception your required beginning date for that 401k this woman there's a case chris with this example if she had her own ira she died both before and after her required beginning date in the ira the required beginning date would have been uh, 70 well in this example she was 78 her required beginning date would have been 70 and a half she would have turned um 70 and a half eight years ago when the required beginning date age rather was 70 and a half so her required beginning date would have been april 1st of the year following the year she turned 70 and a half for her ira so at 78 she would have died after her required beginning date but for the 401k because it had the still working exception in this example that ed is saying as he as he answers it the 401k with a still working exception, your required beginning date is April 1st of the year following separation from service. And separation of service is defined as, if you're still working, the day you literally quit and retire or die. So Hmm. for the 401k, she died before her required beginning date just for that employer's 401k where she was still working if she had others if she didn't consolidate into IRAs and she had other 401ks those 401 excuse me not consolidate into IRAs if she didn't consolidate other 401ks into this 401k where she was working if she kept them separate she would have died after her required beginning date for those 401ks, but before her required beginning date for that 401k. Does that make sense? It does now that you explain it. And there's obviously a specific rule regarding this, which I was unaware, which is exactly what I was worried about, that I would learn something today. <laughs> and so, so I'm glad I learned that. A fun little fact that you're, you know, you officially haven't gotten to your required beginning date if you're part of that still working exception. I thought it was more like when you suspend your Social Security benefits. Uh, once you've claimed them, you're technically still a claimant, but you have them paused. 
uh, kind of that concept in, you know, in my mind that yes, you've reached your required beginning date, as you mentioned for her would have been seven and a half, but they didn't make her take any money out. It was kind of one of those things where they've pa- almost paused it instead, but you still officially had reached your required beginning date. So I'm glad you clar- cleared it up that it's not like that. Uh, that's another one of those things where I'm likely not to forget it moving into the future because, uh, that's just how my brain works when I'm, when I'm wrong and I, you know, learn something new I usually for some reason that sticks more than just learning it the right way. The first time I usually have to hear it a few times, the, the, the old fashioned learning way. But, uh, uh, when it's a correction of something that I had wrong, it usually sticks with me a little bit better. So thank you for, for sharing that one with me. Although I'm the one who picked it. <clears throat> and here's Ed's answer or his minions answer. I'm not sure if Ed actually answered these or if one of his minions wrote them. But the answer was this. The required beginning date for a person who is still working but uses the still working exception is April 1st of the year after separation of service. If the individual dies before this date, he or she is considered to have died before their required beginning date, despite their age. For example, let's say Nancy is 78 years old and going strong. So she continues to work and contribute to a 401k. Since the plan has a still working exception, she does not have to take a required beginning, excuse me, a required minimum distribution. If Nancy retires or dies, her required beginning date will be April 1st of the year after the year she separates or dies. Okay, that was question three. Do we still have time for more? Um, we can probably do one more. Okay, so let's, uh, randomly choose a number between 1 and 26, see. except for any of the numbers that you already chose. Mm-hmm. Or 22. We don't want 22. Right. How about 12. Uh, this is kind of a chintzy one. But I'll smell. It's just asking, is a SEP IRA protected from creditors under ERISA? Remember I just mentioned, folks, that one of the reasons you may not want to move an employer-sponsored plan to an IRA is you wanted the rock-solid creditor protection granted from the government law that's called ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And I believe it came out in 73 or 78. It was somewhere around there. It was in the early 70s. I don't think it was 78. Uh, 78 is when IRAs, I think, were first created under ERISA. But uh, it came out in the early 70s to protect employer retirement accounts. Not so much 401ks, because they didn't even exist back then, but pension plans, old-fashioned pension plans. And the government gave them very, very strong bankruptcy and creditor protections. Bankruptcy protections for IRAs transfers under uh, rules that the government passed. So the ERISA-protected accounts If you move a 401k to an IRA and have to declare bankruptcy, you get ERISA protection on money that was in a ERISA protected plan. The bankruptcy protection carries over to an IRA. 
contributions you make to an IRA receive separate bankruptcy protection up to a million something, I forget, unlimited on dollars that move from a 401k to an IRA, unlimited bankruptcy protection on those ERISA protected dollars, a million something, I, I forget off the top of my head, Chris can look it up, uh, on IRA contributions and growth. However, creditor protections, that's the trip and fall, or you ran a red light and slammed into a bus full of attorneys, that type of joke thing. But people who were suing you for something you did, creditor protection does not generally transfer over, and I won't say generally, does not transfer over in IRAs. That is granted by states. But a SEP, is a special kind of IRA only available to employers. Generally speaking, you only see them with self-employed people because the contribution rules can be quite onerous if you have employees. Whatever you put in as a percentage of your pay, you've got to match for all employees. And if you're trying to put the max, which is about 20, 25% in, uh, most people don't want to give that much to their employees uh, as well. But that's an employer plan. A SEP is in a special IRA. That's for employers, mostly self-employed people. So this advisor was asking, it's kind of an employer plan. So does it get? creditor protections under ERISA? No, unfortunately they don't. Because literally what's happening is your your employer is setting up an IRA for you and then they're allowed to make contributions into it. That's essentially the SEP structure. So it's going to play by the rules in this regard uh, of an IRA. So it is not uh, an ERISA protected plan. That is correct. And that's what Ed says. A SEP is an IRA. But the plan, excuse me, the SEP is an IRA-based plan and therefore has no creditor protection under ERISA. SEP IRA funds are protected under federal bankruptcy law. However, non-bankruptcy creditors, that's the trip and fall creditors, folks, non-bankruptcy creditors would be determined by state law. So your state is what grants general, I call them general creditors, but technically speaking, they're non-bankruptcy creditors. That protection is granted to IRAs by state law. An employer plan, not a SEP IRA because it's, it's different, but an employer plan, 401k, 403b, 457, um, employer plans, they get ERISA protection under federal law. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Well, this was kind of fun, I thought. Some it good was, questions. We have we only went through one, two, three, four, five, six of them, so there's 20 more. Although we're oh, not we going to do 22, so. No 22. Did you save the numbers that you did? Because we can I, always pull this out and maybe continue with another another group of questions. I thought they were pretty good. I don't mm -hmm. know what our listeners think. Yeah. But so I'll keep this list so that we remember which ones we've done. That would be fine. 
Okay, perfect. Yeah, in case we decide to do this, no promises. We don't probably some some better idea might come up before next week. But if we continue this, we'll uh, we'll not duplicate any because I'll keep track of them. So that uh, brings us to the end of today's EDU show. We do appreciate everybody listening and can't wait to hear about your adventures from Loveland, Ohio, uh, over the coming shows. You can. I'm going to go try to find this castle, castle. Of, which yeah. you, of which you speak of. I, uh, that doesn't look like a huge area, so I think you'll be able to find it pretty quickly. And it's a, it's a, it's not a hidden thing. I think it's a well-known thing. So I think you'll find it. You'll well, give I'm going to meander. I'm going to meander mm-hmm. into the town for, for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. Tonight is Halloween as we record these. Mm-hmm. And I did bring some candy for the little rugrats, but I just don't feel like sitting there handing out candy tonight. So I'm going to go into town and grab a bite to eat. Go hide at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but if any, ring the doorbell. I do have Junior Mints and Nestle Crunch. I think I kind of nailed it with really good candy, though. Yeah. Rachel says I should just leave it outside in a bucket, a bowl. But I figure the mm-hmm. kids will just first one there is just going to grab all the junior. Who wouldn't grab every junior mint box? Seriously. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of the bowl outside. But anyway, might mm-hmm. maybe if you're worried about getting your house egged if you don't have any candy for them, that's it's, it's an Airbnb. It's cheap, I don't care if they insurance. egg it. It's not there my house. Okay. Well, there I'm go. sure the gentleman <laughs> that, okay. that I'm. Uh, renting it from uh, would not appreciate eggs being thrown at it. But uh, anyways, we'll see. I have no idea if I'm going to get trick-or-treaters or or not. But if I do go into Loveland for dinner, I will ask someone at the restaurant uh, which way to the castle. Nice. Can't wait to hear about it. So thank you, everybody. We'll be back with you next week uh, with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 